This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So that was 20. And by the time I was 26, my worldview was like the total opposite. I'm like, wow, nothing that has happened to me that I value has been because of any kind of plan. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. If you're enjoying our podcast, then come on over to our website at don'tstopusnow.co and sign up for our community with some awesome things planned for this year. Now for this week's episode. If we had to summarize what our guest today is all about, then I'd say she's about reinvention and being true to herself. And that meant abandoning a successful corporate career. I'm talking about Kat Dunn, the 35-year-old CEO of Grameen in Australia. That's part of the global not-for-profit organization founded by the Nobel Prize winner, Professor Muhammad Yunus. Kat has such a great story. For years, she'd been unhappy and yet very successful, continually climbing the corporate ladder, first as a lawyer, and then in a variety of increasingly senior roles at a financial services company, until one day she said, enough, and we unpeel exactly how and why she did this and how she feels now, several years down the track. Indeed we do. In this frank and heartfelt episode, you'll hear... What it's like growing up Asian in an almost all-white country town in Western Australia. How Kat started out as a consummate planner, and we mean serious planner. Serious. And then realized that it just simply wasn't working. How she confronted failure head-on and even made a business out of it. How she's never felt more secure despite earning 50% less than she's used to. And how you, yes you, could be part of a TV show and go on an all-expenses-paid adventure and experience of a lifetime if you're listening to this episode whilst it's still hot off the press. So, without further ado, enjoy this episode with the wise beyond her 35 years, Kat Dunn. Kat Dunn, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Claire and I are so excited to have you here in Sydney. Thank you so much for having me, Claire and Greta. I'm super excited to be here as well. Excellent. We can't wait to learn more about your journey to date. And in fact, as a way of kicking off, a common question we ask and would love to ask you the same is, you know, if you could explain your current career today, how would you do that? I would say that 
growing up, I'd always bought into this idea that you had to choose, that you had to either be a greedy capitalist who had all of the money or a starving humanitarian that saved the world, but you couldn't do both. And my career to date has been an exploration and challenging of that ideal because I grew up in corporate law, working in corporate law and funds management, thinking that I had to do this to make all of the money. And I bought into, I guess, this dominant idea that success was a linear thing where you checked off a lot of boxes. You went to university, you got the prestigious job with the title, you made all the money and you made, you know, you got to a point where you had prestige and status. And in doing so, you had to compromise your values or certainly I felt like I did that. That didn't sit well with me. And so my career in certainly in the last two years has been an exploration that you can actually merge profit and purpose. And I did that by quitting my corporate job, which I can talk about a bit later on, and eventually getting headhunted to lead the Australian operations of Grameen Australia, which is activating social businesses in Southeast Asia and Australia. And that's quite the rich answer, isn't it? There's so many things that we'll be wanting to go deeper on, no less the example you gave of changing career and exploring more fully how you could explore profit and purpose. As CEO of Grameen Australia, what's the main kind of purpose of Grameen in Australia? It's evolved as the philosophy of social business has evolved. Our broad vision really is to help Professor Muhammad Yunus, who's our founder, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for alleviating poverty through microfinance, to usher in his vision, which is a world of three zeros. That's a world of zero poverty, zero unemployment, and zero net carbon emissions. And Historically, what we've been is an overseas aid fund, which is funding projects that are social business businesses in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines and Cambodia. But in Australia, we've absolutely got the opportunity to do more than what we've been doing in the past. And that is one, exploring the viability of microfinance as it applies in Australia, and two, developing the social business ecosystem and looking for those amazing social business entrepreneurs that we can help to support. Love to if we could though now step back to you, Kat, and think about you know going right the way back to your childhood. I think if I'm right, you were born in the Philippines. What were your early childhood years like? So I was born in Manila in the Philippines, and I came to Australia when I was two or three years old. And the reason for that was my mother. She was one of seven children. They had a really hard life, and she had me with a Filipino man and um, wasn't able to support me. My father is an Australian, was an Australian crop duster, and was in the Philippines buying aircraft and fell in love with my mom and me and wanted to take us to Australia. So I actually grew up in country WA. I grew up in country WA in a place called Geraldton with 30,000 people. And I would say that in early childhood, it was the tension between. Between being very lucky to live in a country like Australia, but also very challenging because of the cultural differences that I was growing up within and also learning about things like resource scarcity with my parents' kind of mindset, given that they had a hard upbringing and really, you know, wanted me to succeed through what they thought would be um, a great favour to me, through pushing me to have a very linear career. So how would people have described you as a kid? Um... I think they would have described me as a as a quiet achiever. Massive nerd would be probably the other way they could describe me. <laughs> Geraldton is like, you know, a pretty small town and in a regional area. It must have been pretty hard because you must have stood out as somebody 
really quite different to everybody else. Absolutely. I yeah learned about racism at a really young age. I learned about how there were different classes of people and how you got treated differently depending on what class your society determined you to be part of. And I also learnt that it wasn't broad brush. Like Geraldton as a country town is a generally really lovely place to grow up in and so there was a lot of support. And so I guess that's why the dissonance was so stark for me. Like it was such a friendly place and it was so inclusive and welcoming and yet there was this really toxic undercurrent of fear and hatred and exclusion that I would quite often experience. So... You went to university, studied law, and then you became a lawyer, a <laughs> yeah. really successful yeah. lawyer. So you did what your parents wanted you to do. <laughs> yep. And then you jumped into a role, I think, with a financial institution, Perpetual. Yes. You know, what was your game plan as you moved into Perpetual? You know, I was always one of those kids that had like a 3, 5, 10, 30, 60-year plan. 60? Yeah. I was like, I remember riding down when I was 20 in a caravan in Broome when my mum and dad were fishing, what I would be doing in my 80s and like planning my kids' lives. I was, you know, just such a control freak. What were you going to be doing just quickly when you were 80? Oh, I think that I was going to have like three sets of grandkids and they were all going to be like living in just in like country Western Australia or somewhere and they were all going to have like amazing careers and they would be plotting out their linear lives as well because it worked out so, so well needy. for me. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was 20. And by the time I was 26, my worldview was like the total opposite. I'm like, wow, nothing that has happened to me that I value has been because of any kind of plan. I remember thinking if I just took this step and then this step and got qualified here, then I would be able to take step C, not my actual life experience at all. And by the time I was, I think it would have been 30, 30 when I moved to Perpetual, my life plan was just if there's an opportunity that lights you up on the inside, even if you don't know how you're going to execute on the deliverables for it, just say yes. So there you are, you're working in sort of legal, but for a major financial services company, you've already realized that the game plan doesn't work as you thought it did. Mm. What was the moment where you started to realize that perhaps this wasn't the world you wanted to be working in? If I'm honest and admit it to myself, as soon as I started as a graduate at the law firm that I first worked at, I thought that because there were so many successful, esteemed, influential people doing that type of work, that it was going to fill me with noble purpose. And that was also the kind of work I should be doing. And then when I got in there and I noticed that it was slightly, it was not slightly, it was, it was quite different to what I had expected. It wasn't as values driven. It was much more commercial. I actually started to feel within myself, there's something wrong with me because I am not naturally as enamored or enchanted by this work. And I'm not as naturally passionate about it. Maybe there's something wrong with me and I need to shave down what I want so that I can fit into this box so that I can be approved of by these people so that I can get promoted and so that I can conform to the cultural memes that seem to be what, you know, signal success in this environment. So probably when I was 24, when I got my first grad job and I lied to myself and pretended that it was okay up until I was 33 and having had four career changes in a very short period of time, could no longer deny the reality that that did not align with who I was. And what was the moment where you woke up and you thought, enough? 
I remember, I guess it was a series of moments that culminated into the one moment, which was the night before I quit my role at mm. Perpetual. Um, and so I'd gone from a securitization lawyer to the other end of the capital market spectrum to becoming an M&A and private equity lawyer to somewhere in the middle becoming an internal trust and funds lawyer to leading a hedge fund transaction business that did $3 billion worth of deals in 18 months to being appointed to a strategy role in people and culture. And I thought that all of that, if I was nudging myself in the right direction, I would all of a sudden feel empowered and fulfilled and free. And, you know, this one night in October 2016 was one of the many nights I was at home with my husband at the time, crying because I felt so guilty that I didn't love this dream job that everybody was clamoring for. I was listening to this transformational comedian called Kyle Cease, a video on six minutes of creativity that he did at Awesomeness Fest by Mind Valley. And he was saying something amongst all the jokes and whatnot. He said something that really resonated with me. And it was, as humans, our minds can only measure what we will lose. It can't measure what we will gain. And that to me struck me as so important for where I was at that time because I looked at what I'd built over my career and I didn't want to lose it, but I had, I, I knew that I couldn't possibly imagine what I would gain. And what if, what if what I could gain was infinitely more powerful than what I stood to lose? And that was the moment where I said the next day, I called up the secretary of my group executive and said, I'd love to have a meeting with her face to face. I need to tell her something. And that message was that I was resigning. That's such a powerful, interesting, thought-provoking statement, is it? isn't it, about how we think and how it's so much easier to think about what we lose and not to think about what we gain. And how did you feel in that conversation? Was there a lot of fear? <laughs> there was a lot of fear, but it got to the point where the discomfort of staying and being incongruent with my values outweighed the discomfort of having the hard conversation. And it was a hard conversation because I loved that person. I loved my boss and I loved the career and opportunities I had, but it wasn't at the expense of my future. You can be grateful for something and also be okay to let it go. Had you started to speculate what it might be that you would be wanting to do? I knew that I wanted to work and live my life congruent with my values. I knew that I wanted to serve the community in some way. I knew that I needed to make a living in order to do that. So I had some general principles and I knew that I wanted to work with people that I wanted to work with and lit me up. And those were my general principles, but I did not know what the content would be. I did not know what the title would be. I didn't know what kind of business it would be. I didn't even know what industry it would be. I just knew that I had to take some time to basically jump out of the plane and construct the parachute on the way down. Sounds like either a mix of quite frightening or overwhelming. Yes. And also, yeah, it was it was terrifying. It was overwhelming. And at the bedrock of that was this sense of hope and relief. And as the days kind of moved on, that hope and relief got bigger and bigger and bigger. And out of that came opportunities I said yes to, which I didn't really have probably the right nor the experience to say yes to. And gradually, I kind of started building a life that really fulfilled what I had intended to that day that I quit. Can I ask a quick question? What did your parents say? I, you know what, this is the thing about fear that it's scarier in concept than it is in reality. Because when I told my parents what I was doing, I have fully thought that they were just going to say, of everything that we've given to you, like of all of the risks that we took, you've gone and done this and we're so disappointed. 
They basically said, we are so proud of you that you are making a decision that's in line with your values and that you're going to be happy. And, you know, over the past 10 or so years or whatever it is, we trust you. And as long as you trust yourselves, we'll back you 100%. And so they challenged my impression of what they would say. Wow, that makes me want to cry. Mm. What an incredible thing to say. But what's amazing is how your mind makes these things up, isn't yep. it? You're fully expecting them to sort of ostracize you yep. or at the or worst be furious. or be furious. Uh, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Angry. You know, angry. And look what they do. Yeah, that started getting me thinking, what other conversations aren't I having because I'm afraid of what's going to happen, like living in that non-reality. Yeah. We can construct so many things inside our own heads, can't we? And the tangents that we can go off (laughs) if we leave ourselves to our own devices, it's really – it's just a crime because we can shortchange ourselves in so many different ways. Yeah, and shortchange our grandchildren we don't even have. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> We're on this linear path. That's yeah. right. <laughs> now, part of all of the, the things that you started to experiment with and do once you were changing roles was you set up an amazingly named forum or event called Fear of Failure Forum. F off. F, F off. off. Yeah. <laughs> Provocative at, at the very least. Tell us about that. The acronym came to me and it was so good I've had to backstitch the words <laughs> that would comprise it. <laughs> I just remember thinking I, you know, I felt such a fear of failure because I thought that I was a failure. I thought that what I was doing was an issuing of all of the achievements that I'd, you know, worked so hard to compose when I was in that linear mindset. But I didn't have anyone to share it with. Like I had no friends that were doing what I was doing. I didn't have a community. So I wanted to construct that kind of community. And also I knew it wasn't just me. I decided to start something that I thought was just going to be small scale, an open mic night where people could say F off, which stands for the Fear of Failure Forum, which is a movement to say F off to your fear of failure and grow your potential. Initially, it was just going to be 10 people, five minutes each, open mic night talking, a bit like a poetry slam on failure, an ode to failure so that we could think about reframing it so it didn't hold us back from the contributions we wanted to make. And it kind of escalated really quickly from that to essentially an organization that launched its first event at Work Club Global on the 1st of February. That's another F off. First of Feb, (laughs) which I really loved. (laughs) And we managed to raise $5,000, which we donated to Beyond Blue. It was a full house sold out event. And that ended up becoming an events program for that year, 2017, over five different events, five different venues, all sold out with different themes for the strategies people could deploy to face into their fear of failure. What did you see change as a result of those forums and those conversations that you were having? I think the biggest growth area that I had was being authentic. So I was so accustomed to having a face and a facade and a mask in the corporate world just you know, so that you wouldn't lose political capital. I almost couldn't decouple what I thought and what was like the right message to say. And I used to be super afraid that if I was authentic and shared who I was and all my vulnerabilities and weaknesses and failures and lessons, that I would be ostracized. That was a massive threat to me. But the more that I started speaking up through F off and seeing other people speak up, the more that that really shifted for me. There were three major reasons I didn't quit my job sooner or change sooner. One, I was afraid I'd never make that kind of money again. Two, I was afraid that I would lose all my friends. And three, I was afraid I would lose my identity. But then I realized as I started being more authentic and being more comfortable to 
be real that the opposite started happening. So there's all of this energy released that I don't have to pretend to be somebody that I'm not. I can still be accepted as I am. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. You know, I'm really curious. Do you think if you'd done that in the corporate world, you know, you'd been your authentic self, do you think the repercussions would have been what you thought they were in your head? Well, what I've found out is the more that I've been my authentic self in that world whenever I do touch into it and go back to... um you know, my old colleagues, the more that I've actually reinforced connections. So I was afraid that if I was authentic, I would lose support. It was a career limiting move. But what I've realized is being authentic actually is a breather. It gives people permission to be themselves and is, yeah, really has much more benefits than it does consequences, negative consequences. One thing I think that's really interesting is that you seem to have had from quite an early age, a strong understanding and knowledge of your values. And and then you have this sort of unpeeling of your kind of true identity. How do you advise someone who's feeling a little bit awash and adrift and not quite clear? Who am I? And how do I stand strong in my identity and my values? You know, How would you advise them to start that process of really being true to themselves? It's so easy to come to that conclusion seeing me now, but I actually wasn't that person who had strong values. I I feel very much like I was that person who was awash and adrift and didn't really know what I stood for up until I was 33, 34, you know, and even now I'm still learning about that. So it's not something that you need to have determined at a young age or been born with. And the second one is I think that you can start a self-inquiry at any time. And if you don't have the language for what your values are, I used to always be in my head, like very analytical, wanting to language everything. And one approach that has helped me to language my values later is just listening to my feelings. What are the environments that I feel safe in or happy in? And what are the opportunities that I enjoy? And I can language what that is later. So the advice that I'd have for somebody who doesn't know what their purpose or their values are is it's okay not to know. And the best first step is just start to like listen to how you feel in given situations, maybe try to catalog what they are. And from there, you'll be able to construct a pattern downstream. I think that's really great advice. You know, actually journaling, whether it's in the morning or the evening mm. is is a really powerful tool because it allows you to sort of sit and listen to yourself and then write it down and then look back on those patterns, as you say. Absolutely. Brilliant. If you could turn the clocks, let's say you were 20 years old and you were sitting in that caravan writing Mm. a 60-year plan, plan, Mm. but you probably wouldn't be writing a 60-year plan. (laughs) What do you wish you'd known about yourself? What do I wish I'd known about myself? I wish I'd known that I didn't have to rely on external security that I had all the resources within me to be able to withstand anything external that I've got a, whether I believe it or not, I've got a strength of character within that can help me through anything. I think we undersell our ability to thrive and survive. We don't trust ourselves enough. And I would give myself permission to trust myself back then. And I think I would have told myself or reminded myself that actually life is a choose your own adventure. And so no matter what decision you made then, there's no point worrying about it because you'll make the most of it anyway. So whether I dropped out of law school and decided to go and join the circus or went to law school and decided to become a lawyer or ended up like doing a totally random different degree and going overseas, like any of those options that were available to me at the time, 
I would have been fine no matter what. So um, I guess it's a bit of a furphy to sit there and go, if I don't take this perfect next step, then I won't end up where I need to be. It's like, well, you're probably going to have a really good, exciting life anyway by the time you're making those decisions. So it doesn't really matter. But what about for those listeners who are thinking and thinking about themselves as well, possibly, you know, there you were, you're an M&A lawyer and you're worried about how could you ever earn as much money. And here you're saying you can trust yourself to thrive and yep. support yourself. Presumably the reality is, though, that as a sort of CEO of a, a not-for-profit, you're not earning as much, but how has life been adjusting to that? Mm. This is one of the things that blew my mind when I realised this. I earn like 50% less money than I did in corporate. And, I, and like full disclosure here, the past my life the past two years is fundamentally unrecognisable. I'm 35 years old. I'm childless. I'm going through a separation, a very loving one, so I'm not married. I'm earning less money than I did in corporate and I've got a completely different career to the one that I started out my degree in and paid all my hex for and I have never felt more fulfilled in my life. And I really understand now what people talk about when they talk about financial security being a mindset rather than an external reality because I have less quotes unquote money now but my experience of my life is so much more secure and more fulfilling because I'm not striving to be something that I'm not. That's not to say that people who are in M&A ought to do something different. If they love it, go nuts. You know, that's a wonderful thing to have. But I also don't feel like, um, yeah, I, I think that I bought into a bit of a lie when it comes to financial security. It's really thinking about finances and resources in a very abundant way, rather than saying, I have less, I've lost something. My mindset is on, well, what can I gain out of this experience? What's something novel that I otherwise wouldn't be able to have? And be grateful for that. I want to come back to something you said about your intuition and the fact that you wish you could use your intuition more when Mm. you were younger. How do you do it now? You know, how do you use it? When do you use your intuition versus facts and evidence? Actually, Malcolm Gladwell talks a bit about this in his book, Blink, when he says, so Blink is looking at how you can make a decision without making a decision necessarily, thinking without thinking and how to use instincts to make um, uh, great decisions. And one of the anecdotes he uses is like how some experts who are experts in art are able to spot a fake in the blink of an eye versus people who've studied notoriously may not be experts and do a lot of analysis but still can't get it right. And one of the things that he talks about is when to use instinct, when instinct is a really good tool um, for optimal decisions. And I resonated a lot with this comment where he said, Maybe sometimes when you're making a decision about day-to-day things, like should I buy this toaster, should I buy this dress, maybe listening to instinct and impulse isn't the best tool. Maybe it's doing a pros and cons analysis of that particular toaster is better in those everyday choices. But when it comes to those big ticket items, where are you going to go with your career? Who are you going to marry? Where will you live for the next 10 years? Maybe the better way to make that decision isn't a pros and cons analysis, isn't in your logic brain, but listening to your instincts because your instincts, they are connected to your nature. And when you are doing something that's in alignment with your nature, not only will you feel great about that decision, but you'll likely excel and thrive even in the hardest of external circumstances because that's what your nature wants. And so there's less resistance because you're naturally going to be good at that. You're naturally going to want it. And so you're naturally going to create an amazing experience out of it. And so when I decide to use my intuition and my instincts are probably some of the most Big, some of the biggest decisions, the ones that will change the direction of my life. 
should I marry this person? Should I ask this person out? Should I split up with my husband? Should I move to Bondi? Should I move to Perth? Those big ticket decisions. If I get that feeling of relief after I've imagined it, even if it seems crazy, like logically crazy, because I'll have to galvanize a lot of resources to make it happen, I will choose that decision because of the ease that I feel within. I'd love to just quickly look forward because we're running out of time, but you know, what's the thing that most excites you about your future? Mm. I am super excited about the possibilities for Grameen Australia in Australia. You know, we are very much mirroring the experience of microfinance and social business that Professor Yunus has had in the um, start of Grameen, you know, many years ago, we started off in microfinance in the Philippines and then building out to social business in Cambodia and the Philippines. In Australia, in the future, we've really got the opportunity to look at how we can play a big part in encouraging more social businesses to surface. Fantastic. And I believe you're doing something a bit out there. Yes, yes. So in the spirit of combining, you know, profit and purpose uh, or combining two things to make a blended, interesting whole, we're actually working with an organization called Charity TV Global, which is looking at how do they revolutionize TV and revolutionize charity fundraising at the same time. So the answer is they're going to cast 12 locals on a adventure TV show who will be involved in fundraising activities for a charity. And this year, that charity is Grameen. We are a beneficiary of that. So what we're doing is um we're actually running a casting session on the 7th of March at 6.30 p.m. at the Entourage's offices. That's down in Darling Harbour. Right. In Sydney. In Sydney. we've got in a lot Sydney. of international listeners. In Sydney. Sorry, international listeners. Well, actually, they can fly there. I've got people from Bali flying in day really? a day early to go to the casting show because they're really interested in this. So it's a casting session for 30 minutes. We're looking for 12 people who'd be willing to raise $10,000 each for Grameen and in exchange they get to be part of an amazing community and get to go on an all-expenses-paid adventure tour for five days and we've got to determine the date. It's somewhere towards the end of the year, five days, Monday to Friday, and then they get filmed having adventures. In Australia? We are – Secret Squirrel. Oh, Secret Squirrel. Okay. Okay. Secret Squirrel. Secret Squirrel. So in an undisclosed location. And then this gets cut and it's going to be distributed to a mainstream TV channel in Australia and TVNZ in New Zealand. (laughs) Brilliant. We talked a lot about the things that you tell yourself. So what would you tell your 30-year-old self today? What I would tell my 30-year-old self today is that don't be ashamed or afraid to show to the world the best qualities of yourself that you wish that they could see but feel like they would reject you for if they saw it because I think, you know, when I was 30, I had like this little glimmer inside my heart about, you know, what kind of person I wanted to be and what I wanted the world to see me, but I didn't feel like I was deserving to show that because, you know, we're taught to diminish ourselves so much. So I don't think it's actually a compromise on humility and I don't think it's arrogant to just be factual about all the goodness that you want to share in the world and, you know, let yourself be that person. And if people judge you or think that you're too intense or think that you're too positive or think that you're too ambitious, then that's okay because you'll find equally enough people that will be inspired by that that you can relate with. So I think I would just say don't be afraid to shine. I love that. 
Well, you're certainly shining now. <laughs> and thank you so much for sharing your amazing story and all your experiences and your journey. Now, if listeners wanted to find out more about you and the Grameen Bank and the other work that you do, how would they find you? They can go to Grameen, G-R-A-M-E-E-N.org.au. And that is our website. And they can also follow us on Facebook. And our handle is G-R-A-M-E-E-N-A-U. And for me personally, I'm on Instagram. That's probably the best way to find me, dot cat, D-U-N-N dot cat on Instagram. If you look on the Grameen page, you'll also be able to see the link to our charity TV casting session on the 7th of March. That's 2019. That's 2019 in Sydney at the Entourage at 6.30. Fantastic. We'll put that all on the episode page on don'tstopusnow.co. Fantastic. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. We thank you. really love this. You're such a inspiration and you're sparkling thank and you. shining at us. And we can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing to surface amazing stories of Aussie entrepreneurs. This is such a and unique global, po- global, and, and global. global entrepreneurs. Yeah, it's a very unique podcast and it's getting cut through. Like my friends and I really enjoy it. So thank you for this service. That's so great to here. Thanks so much, Kat. Kat's story really is one of reinvention and being true to herself, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It really was very powerful. She touched on it, but I think in those years before she finally quit her corporate job, she really paid a high price in terms of happiness and quality of life. Yes, and I think, you know, a lot of people pay that price to a different degree. You know, it really takes courage to buck society's norms and definition of what success looks like, in other words, climb the corporate ladder, and go out there and do what's right for you personally. Yeah, absolutely. And some people never do get up the courage to quit. No. And then, of course, people's circumstances won't allow them to make such a radical change mid-career. Absolutely, for some that's the case. But look at how that risk has paid off for Kat. Now, during our conversation, Kat mentioned a number of places you can go to learn more about Grameen, or she talked about a video. Now, as per usual, we're going to have all those links on our website at don'tstopusnow.co. Brilliant. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Don't miss our interview coming up with an amazing young British coral scientist and expert, Dr. Emma Camp, and hear about her vital work to help save the world's coral reefs. Yeah, it's such important work, and Emma's so fantastic. She certainly is. I'm super excited about this one. Me too. See you soon. Ciao for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.